Welcome to the Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast, covering agriculture and all things related in West Carroll, Morehouse, East Carroll, Madison, Tinsall, Concordia, and Catahoula Parishes. Hello, everyone, and thanks again for listening to the Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast. My name is Kylie Miller, and we have with us Mr. R.L. Frazier, Dennis Burns, and Mr. Bruce Garner. Why don't y'all say good morning or good or morning, hi, everyone? Whatever you want to say. <laughs> well, um, we're glad you're listening to us today, and today we have our guest, um, Mr. Luke Stamper. Luke, um, it's been a while since you've been on. Why don't we begin by you telling us about yourself, who you are, and what you do? Yeah, uh, thanks, Kylie. It's probably about a year ago since I've uh, been on uh, talking about some upcoming events that we're going to talk about today. But yes, Kylie said, my name's Luke Stamper. I am uh, the regional wildlife and forestry agent for the LSU Ag Center. I'm housed here in Caldwell Parish and uh, and got about 12 parishes that I cover uh, working with private landowners, stakeholders and conducting you know numerous workshops and, and seminars across the region. Okay, well, the one that you've got coming up next week, Wildlife Field Day at St. Joe. Why don't you tell us about when it is and um, I guess what what we would be doing once we get there? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh this is our third annual event uh putting on this forum and field day. Uh what we've tried to do with this event is rotate it around the region so that uh most people have access to it at some point in time. So uh this year we're actually hosting it in Tinsall Parish. It's gonna be in our Northeast Research Station. Uh you know, we don't really put a, a hard theme on any of these events, but I guess if we had to say one, it's uh it's management in lieu of uh of chronic wasting disease since we are in Tinsall Parish, uh, kind of the epicenter of, uh, of all the positives that's been found over the past two years. So uh, with this meeting, we've tried to, um, or we're going to try to educate folks on native habitat management. Uh, what are some of the things that we can do when we are under some of these, uh, these banning zones and we can't do our regular techniques uh, during hunting season? So we're trying to get folks to think outside the box there. Uh, we've got Jonathan Bordelon is going to be on the event. That's the LDWF Deer Program Manager. He's talking about this, uh, you know, where we're at with CWD and uh, what's to come, what we're looking at uh, in terms of an outlook. But uh, got a variety of speakers on the program. Like I said, we're going to be talking about native habitat management. We've got our soil scientists and uh, Dr. Uh, Parvez is going to talk about interpreting uh, some of our food plot soil samples that we get uh a lot of folks uh, dealing with from year in and year out and also got some updates on uh on avian influenza that's being found across the state also in southern arkansas as well as some of the feral hog removal that we've been uh that's been going on through usda aphis uh from from helicopter so lots of good reports updates lots of outside the box management practices so i think it'll be something for anybody that's uh either hunting or managing property or anything along those lines Go ahead, Mr. R. I'll see you waving. <laughs> <laughs> All right, CWD, Luke, just for the folks that may or may not be familiar with it, what are we talking about? Uh, it's a disease found in cervids, uh, chronic wasting disease. It's in a, uh, it's in the TSE family. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a prion disease that's being found. It's found in several states across 
the U.S. It's been documented back to the 60s, but uh, as of late, uh, Louisiana uh, detected this uh, in last year um, in Tensaw Parish. And uh, I think we had one positive last year, and then this year, uh, this past hunting season from hunter harvested uh, sampling, I think we found an additional 11 positives. So uh, with with each positive or, or every time one is detected in a state, uh, you know, LDWF uh, reacts to that and they put in a quarantine zone. Uh, there's certain regulations that follow that. Every state is different. But um, so that's kind of where we're at right now. We're just kind of in the learning phase. We're rolling out or LDWF is, uh, you know, our job and extension is we're just trying to get that outreach and uh, education point out to the public, but we're kind of following their lead on what they're doing. Okay. Uh, kind of follow just a minute, Dennis. Okay. <laughs> uh, again, you know, the chronic waste in the witches, what it says, uh, just some little bit more information. How long from the time of this, how long an incubation or whatever is it with this disease from the time they may be exposed till there's a problem? And if it's a long incubation period, what about eating the, the, the meat? Eating, we well, from an incubation standpoint, uh, you'll find some different length of periods in the literature. Uh, some have said two year incubation periods, and that's, uh, you know, that incubation meaning when do these animals uh, become clinical? So when are they starting to decline? When are you starting to see that symptomology uh, in the animal, uh, you know, that that comes along with this type of disease? But, you know, going on to the eating, we always follow the CDC recommendations. That's uh, to not eat any positive, uh, a positive animal that you've collected. Uh, that's just, you know, based on CDC recommendations to dispose of that carcass. Okay. My turn. Go ahead. Yep, your okay. turn. Two, th two things. One is here in Tinsel, I don't know how many they collected, but they had, I think they had three freezers, one in Yulton waterproof and one in St. Joe, I think it was one in St. Joe, around St. Joe, that they collected. People were able to drop them off, and, and I don't know the, what testing they did got results from them. I, last time somebody told me they were backed up and gotten enough to, but I do know, like you, know, there were 12 positives the last number I heard. But anyway, uh, part of this, their mitigation with LDAF or LDWF is uh, no more feeding corn, rice bran. So you're going to talk about we are, and we've all done food plots, help people with food plots. You're going to go into it more at this field day. What to plant, when, where, how. Well, we are. We're, we're not going to focus primarily on food plots. We're going to focus on. Uh, improving the seed bank that's already there from a native yeah. habitat standpoint so some of these beneficial forbs that rival some of the crude protein content that we see in food plots already so you know uh there's so many factors or parameters that go into planting food plots this day and time with you know fertilizer prices uh fuel costs everything that's going into it and then also being under feed bans from being in these quarantine zones so we're trying to give people just a different point of view uh, than just the old standards. But if food plots are still an integral part of any, uh, you know, management program, we just always recommend, you know, especially in Tensaw in these river parishes, these deer densities are extremely high. So you're going to have to have large food plot acreage to, to get a, to improve the nutritional plane. You know, you can get some of these small micro plots that, that may aid in hunting or uh, uh, observations or something like that. But, you know, if these 
field days and forums, we're always talking about, you know, management uh, that's going to actually have an impact, and that being the nutritional plan, how can we impact the herd? But yeah, Luke, you kind of you kind of touched on it a little bit there. I, I, you know, could you could you kind of expound on the difference between a a a food plot? You mentioned a micro plot for hunting. Um, and because I've had people ask me, they say, oh, well, you know, do a food plot, it's just like putting corn out. Well, no, not if you if you do it, you know, on a large enough scale, uh, you know, could you could you touch just a little bit on that that scale size to, you know, to say this is what we need to be looking at? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That uh, from a scale standpoint, well, number one being, I guess, from a landowner's eyes is, is you want to plant something that actually withstands browse pressure. So number one, can we plant a, a plot that's large enough to, uh, for say, a cool season food plot, you know, mm-hmm. starting a, a planting date in late September, October, can we plant a mixture of something that's going to last us all the way through January, February? That's the number one goal. So if it's not large enough for the number of miles it's feeding on a day in and day out, then it's, it's going to be a loss at some point. So from a scale size, just from the, from the landowner perspective, that's their, you know, major goal is to have a sustainable food plot that lasts through those winter conditions that go into the spring and then we start thinking about warm season stuff from a nutrition standpoint though i mean we know how much deer eat in a daily basis i mean they can intake you know five percent of their body weight in uh dry matter forage so when you start thinking about how much forage that a single deer consumes in a day and you start matching that with your actual acreage or scale of your food plots when you have a rough idea of the number of deer that your property has, then we start making these uh, these leaps from a nutrition standpoint that can actually help in our lactation rates, our doe body weights, our buck antler potential. All these things start uh, improving over time when we start matching that nutritional plane to the number of deer that we're that we're uh, we're housing on the property. I, I, I say it jokingly, but it, it's kind of serious. It's it's. It's very similar to matching the number of, of of head of cattle per acre. I mean, if if you if you overload a pasture with too many mama cows, everything's going to suffer. Um, so and I, to put that in kind of some of our forage forage guys and some of our cattle guys, you know, it's, it's there's some similar theories there between what we're doing um, in our in our cow pastures. Um, to what you're talking about doing for for food plots. Absolutely, it's it's very very similar, and, and you know you bring that up. One of the things I'm going to talk about in my presentation at the field day is the difference or and the difference in feeding habits between cattle and and cervids being you know deer or or concentrate selectors, meaning that they can digest uh, you know high nutrient plants being broadleaf forbs. Uh, otherwise, and cattle cannot. So cattle is more uh, of a roughage feeder. So they intake large amounts of high, highly lignified uh, plants where deer cannot digest highly lignified plants. So to draw that distinction, a lot of times landowners will come out and they say, well, I got a lot of green vegetation and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. You can see it, but really it's not the right vegetation to improve a deer herd. 
So drawing that distinction on just because we see green vegetation on the landscape doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to uh, result in a, an increased nutritional plane or increased herd health because of the plants we're providing. So that, that goes along, that's directly impacted by your native habitat management approach. So we want to teach, uh, teach these stakeholders, you know, what's a forb, as simple as that may sound, you know, that you still get caught up in some of that stuff. Uh, why are they important? Uh, what kind of nutritional component are they providing? Uh, even seasons, you know, we, we go into right now, a lot of these does are in their probably their third trimester. They're they're getting ready to to drop fall soon. I mean, it's a stressful time for does. It's also a stressful time for bucks that are are growing new antlers. So we need really high quality forages across the landscape. And we get a lot of that from our, our native forbs. Or my soybean fields. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Luke, I think you touched on so it right there. Form, uh, kind of. <laughs> that, uh, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, I, and I think he touched on something really important right there, or at least in my interpretation of it. Right now is when they're growing antlers. Mm -hmm. Not this fall when you start pouring corn to them. That's yeah. right. You need to be taking care of them now or all year long not just uh during baiting season for lack of a better term it is yeah, uh, yeah. and uh and like i said you know i mean there's a lot of things play into it another thing that bruce touched on and i think i hope y'all bring this out too as far as uh deer populations you know that the overpopulation of does is is probably to me as detrimental as anything because we get calls all the time for these uh uh, wildlife, I don't know what they're officially called, but permits to yeah to 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 take out deer right now because they're destroying crops. Uh, so yeah, herd herd management, I reckon, would something I hope y'all touch on. Oh yeah, it's always in the back of our mind, you know. And uh, Louisiana is unique, and it's different eco regions that we find across the state. But, you know, the one that we all work in here is the Northeast region and that Mississippi River corridor and the fertility that we have in soils and the, and the agriculture produced and the, the tonnage that we get from our native plants. I mean, it's a uh, deer density is a battle for landowners. You know, you, you work with them year in and year out and, you know, some really try to to do their part in the antlerless removal. But, you know, it, it's work. It's a job. You know, we, we've yep. got some uh, we've got one talk on this year's field day that we're going to be processing some feral hogs. But, you know, that hunters for the hungry is now taking feral hogs. But, from you know, we're not talking about hogs. We're talking about deer. But, you know, that's another outlet. You know, people that have to take these higher number of deers, you know, consider donating them to 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 some of these uh, you know hunters for the hungry type organizations that are, are feeding some of this. It, it could be a good outlet because. You know, at some point it gets just, I mean, it's too much for one family to harvest. Yeah. You know, yeah. years, excuse me, go ahead, Laura. Oh, um, years ago when we put our our woods into deer management, God, back in, I guess, the 80s, when it was just getting going good, and the biologist came and, and he looked around at our woods, he looked at all the crop fields around it, and he said, you know, and this and this matches a lot of the, the the delta here he said you live in a perfect ecosystem you have shelter you got water that's readily available and you got food all during the summer he said you ought to every doe you see should have twins 
because you got all the row crops, you know, and you got still browse in the woods, you got shelter, you got water. He said, you'll have a perfect ecosystem, you know? Yeah. And, and you did. And I, and I got looking that summer and it was like, yeah, everyone was almost twins, you know? Yeah. And, but then they all got disease and we had to, I think the first year in, we killed 40 something does. Really? You know, two or three years to get them down. And we still have 25 tags on 400 acres of wood. Yeah. I mean, well, you said the, the key word there being uh, falls born or our recruitment rate. So there's an incredibly high recruitment rate along this Mississippi corridor. And, it you know, it's hard to get, to get ahead of that year in and year out when recruitment is so high. Yeah. I got another question, too. Uh, I was with a guy that's got some woods we were out there i collected a bee swarm he had a bee swarm i went and got it we rode through his crp ground and he's got quail coming back and are you going with the native stuff because he had a lot of broom sedge in the field and some other native plants were out there are you going to touch on that i mean he he's got enough quail he's not going to hunt them but they're i mean we flushing quail riding down a road through the through it you know is that, yeah. Are you going to touch on that a little bit? Or? Well, we'll probably touch on that a little bit. It won't be a, a, a quail-centric anything, you know, but uh, but we will touch on the value of the cover that comes from native, uh, you know, native plants being, one, being the wild turkey, too. You know, we're, we're starting to see some hunter harvest declines across the southeast and other parts of the country, you know, and a, a lot of the wild turkey scientists are attributing some of that to the lack of brood rearing cover, nesting cover. All this comes from a combination of our native grasses and native forbs. So all that tends to get wrapped up into one thing. You you do one for one species and it greatly benefits uh, many other species as well. But yeah, you're talking about the cover point. You know, that's what we're lacking in a lot of this, you know, lack of prescribed fire across the landscape or or lack of these, uh, these forb communities and native grass communities. And, you know, getting back into some of that management along our edges or or roadside management. You know, we're going to talk about that on the side of a turn row as well as one of our outdoor uh, talks is roadside management. You know, turn rows are in some places, you know, some of these working farms, it's not always feasible to do some of this. But, to, you know, if you got a working cattle farm or something like that, maybe you can put some of these uh, edge species and, and start to recruit them again. Okay. Oh, you're going to need, when y'all, are y'all going, y'all going to the field here, you're going over there to the oak tree cut and look at that. Your strips? Yeah, we are. We're going to uh, just kind of talk about that area. That's going to be okay. one of the outdoor stops. You need me to see if the bear will come by while <laughs> y'all are here? Yeah, I wish you'd get him out there about that time, just relaxing while everybody's out there. I mean, he, he comes on a regular basis. And, you know, <laughs> I can't guarantee he's going to be there that day, but he's he'll be there at least once during that week. So. Shift <laughs> gears on you, Luke. We've been talking about the deer. I also know you got a lot on there about the feral hogs. Uh, we do. Uh, yeah, a lot of people have been hearing they are and the ways that they can be removed. Absolutely. That uh, what we really wanted to do was report on the USDA APHIS, their recent efforts in uh, hog removal from the air or from the helicopter. We, I, you know, I've I've had several extension agents, Kylie being one of them, expressed uh, concern or just uh, curious about what was taking place. They've heard some of the shots and things like that, and. Um, I'm going to let Dr. Kim Marie Tolson, she's from a professor from ULM, she's going to give us more of the updates. She has all those numbers. She works closely with uh, USDA APHIS on several projects, so she's got a lot of that in, 
but she's going to just kind of share the value of that and what we got from that. Luke, for some of our listeners, touch on real quick the how, the, how many feral hogs have to be removed just to stay in in stasis, more or less, just to stay equal. It's 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 that's always a a, a fact that just blows my mind. It is. It, it gets. I mean, you could almost say uh, all of them. But I mean, yeah. you really get up there between that, you know, that seventy-five percent range there, where you're trying to, you know, remove some of that just to keep them static because their, you know, their ability to recruit is uh, is so high. You know, uh, it's all habitat dependent too. You know, sometimes you can get some of these uh, these female piglets that are ready to reproduce within six to eight months. You know, just right out of the gate in good habitat. So you're looking at you know, close to almost, you know, uh, two reproductive periods in a year. It's not really no. falls out to be a year, it becomes a little bit after. But, you know, you start talking about that six to eight uh, month old range and they're they're reproductively fit at that point in time. So it's it's tough to sit in front of them, too. I, I, I go back to the, the I wish I could remember the guy's name, the, the presentation. And it's been eight, 10 years ago. He was with U.S. Wildlife and Fisheries, and he he made the comment, and I've I've used this quote, and so I got to give credit back to him. I wish, like I said, wish I could remember his name. He said, "There's two type of landowners in Louisiana when it comes to feral hogs: those that's got them, and those that's gonna get them." And you know <laughs> that he was in a presentation. That, honestly, that was 10, 12 years ago that I remember hearing him say that. And in my parishes, I thought then I didn't have any. I had very very few feral hogs. Um, fast forward. 11 years and um, Morehouse Parish is absolutely wrapped up with them and even here in West Carroll Parish where I've got two bodies of water on them you know one on each side north and east and west um, we got feral hogs you know, oh yeah I, I just mm-hmm. when he when the guy said that I was like oh no and yes they're never going to get that bad but it's just the 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 math involved with the reproduction of them it's it's a phenomenal um growth rate as far as population um again i heard i heard a biologist make the comment that they're they're big rats you know, <laughs> yeah as, as, yeah as far yeah. as the reproduction well you know talking about what you're talking about they also have the ability you know we always kind of look at it from a competitive standpoint they're they're out competing our native game species yeah. But, I mean, even kind of bringing that down to a little more narrow look, I mean, and they also have an impact on our plant communities. You know, we're, we're talking about this native plant community and roadside management this upcoming field day. But, you know, if you go right through properties, a lot of times you see some of this, a lot of this rooting and the worst damage is on roadsides, roadside ditches where it's, it has moisture and they can get in there and it's just prime habitat for them to go to rooting. And all of a sudden you start holding water and then you start seeing what was uh, a better plant community start to revert to some of these more wetland plants like you know sedge heavy or rush heavy and all of a sudden where you've been trying to do some management now it's it's proven difficult you know because you have all that feral hog damage taking place look the best picture i saw talking about hogs and was it's been a good many years ago they were this guy put up a camera on a feeder was feeding corn in like early september wanted to see what deer he had available the best picture he got was two bears sitting on one side and he about half a dozen hogs were on the other side waiting for the feeder to go off. And they sit there all day long and he had a bunch of pictures of them. 
Yeah. As soon as the feeder feeder went off, they ate. They jumped out there and they ate everything up. <laughs> then they retreated to each side and they waited for it to go off again. Yeah. You know, waited for the dinner bell. Yeah, okay. I didn't get any. I didn't get any pictures of a deer. You know. Yeah. They're smart. That's for sure. There's you can't take that away from them. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> oh, well Luke let's close again with uh what uh day and time is the for, uh the field day um I guess let me look the date up that's gonna be next Friday the 12th and uh looks like you're gonna get started at 8 8 30 um and there'll be a lunch at noon so that, if everybody that, comes you'll get to eat something good I guess that's what right. you cooking? Because so, that's what they're going to ask us. What are you I cooking? I think we're having fried fish. So okay. we're going to have that catered. So it is, it's going to be a free lunch provided. It's a free meeting. So we will register from 8 to 8.30 a.m. on Friday, May 12th. Um, I would ask that you RSVP if possible, since we are serving food. Uh, the best number to do that at is 318-649-2663. That's our Carwell uh, Extension Office. Uh, all we need is just a name, number of attendees, so we can try to get a, a decent head count. But yeah, um, we will look forward to having anybody with, with some interest in what we're covering. Okay, well, I look forward to being there. Um, some other things I want to talk about before we close is other upcoming field days and events going on that you can get on your calendar. Um, the first, And guys, y'all jump in if y'all want to add anything to it. Um, we've got Rice Field Day in Crowley coming up. That's going to be June 28th. Um, the horse show uh, is that a state horse show, Mr. Ariel? No, that's our district horse district, show. It will be June okay. the 28th and 29th in Bastrop. Okay, all district right, district 4 horse show. All right, then we have vegetable field day with um Marcy that's going to be on June 30th at the research station in St. Joe, Dennis. Yes, okay, all right. We also have uh scout school, so consultants, if you're listening, that's going to be May 25th in Winsboro or June 2nd in Ellick. We also have Row Rice Field Day coming up in St. Joe. That's going to be July 11th. And then um, Corn, Cotton, and Soybean Field Day. That's going to be July 25th at St. Joe. And that one's going to take place in the afternoon. Yes. we're going, right. And we probably feed you supper that night. Oh, well, that sounds good. So that's all I've got on my calendar. Um, guys, do you have anything else? Yeah. Check your date on that uh, scout school in Alexandria. Mm -hmm. I had June 1. Um, I'm looking at the flyer right now. It says June 2nd uh, at the State uh, Evacuation Center. No, it's fine. I, I, no, mean, I, it, I, I mean, I got it. I pulled it off my calendar. I just put it on the wrong day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got June 2nd at the State yep. Evacuation Center in Ellick and May 25th. That's going to be at the Macon Ridge research station in Winsboro. Right. And if anybody's interested in attending, get with us. We've got um, a flyer. I think they want you to register before you go. Um, there's a link. So pay attention in your emails. I know I saw it go out in the remind text at a mm -hmm. system that, that they all do. Um, and that's and, and that's for anybody, anybody, not just consultants, but anybody, farmers, producers, anybody that wanted to come can come, can't they? Uh, we've always done it for consultants um, uh, on the but, flyer. But I mean, it's open. It's open. It's open it says, to anybody, though, isn't it? It's for scouts, field scouts. Oh, okay. All right. So. Um, no, I could still be a producer to scout right. the field. 
I don't think yeah. they would turn anybody away. So if it's something okay. you want to attend, I definitely say go. And they're also going to have lunch at both of those. So I assume that's going to last uh, for most of the day. Um, but it says till one. So yeah, yeah. eight to one. Yeah. All right, then. Well, Luke, we appreciate you coming and, and being on the, the show today. And uh, also, you're welcome to come back anytime. Anything you want to share or tell us about, we would love to have you back. And uh, everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. See y'all. Thank y'all. Thank you, Next week. The Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast is produced by the LSU Ag Center Extension Service. For more information, visit the LSUAgCenter.com website or contact your local extension office.